Lord Jesus, we just, we just thank you tonight that you're a God who hears our prayers, that you know even before we ask what's on our hearts, and you've already moved heaven uh, to respond to us. And God, we do, we pray for a world right now that's uh, in pain and hurting, and uh, we just ask for uh, the citizens of Paris that they would in some fresh way know your presence. But God, more than that, we get that sometimes in our darkest hour, it's the moment in which we seek you. And God, we would ask that you might even bring a revival uh, there in Paris of people just kind of suddenly in the instant saying, we need God in our lives. And uh, we would thank you for that so much. We would be so thrilled to watch that happen. God, we just pray for our church right now as we're going through the loan process. Would you allow the banks to be uh, just flexible and willing to loan us the amount of money that we need? And uh, God, would you just be with us this Sunday as we get ready to take an offering to make up some of the deficit we have? Would you just cause the hearts of our people to be generous and to respond in the moment and say, hey, I want to be part of something that is kingdom. And then, God, would you be with us tonight? Would you honor the fact that we're here studying your word? And would you move our lives just a little bit closer to you because we did it? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, thanks for being here. That's cool. It's a cold night. This is a blizzard by Arizona standards. So thank you for doing that. That, that was bravery that brought you out on the deal. Hey, we're just going to jump in. I want to tell you that if you're new here tonight, it's okay to ask questions. Matter of fact, we uh, love having questions. And if you've got a question, you pop your hand up. We've got microphone runners who will eventually get to you. Uh, they can sometimes be a little bit slow, but they will eventually get to you. And if we like you, we'll actually turn the microphone on. So uh, feel free to ask some questions as we go. All right, so grab your Bibles. Uh, we're Romans uh, chapter 5. If I'm remembering right, I believe we got through verse 11. Does that sound right to everybody? Sort of maybe? You're okay with that? 14. 414. Are we really that? We're not that. No. Did you come last week? We did five. We just uh, justified through faith. You have peace through Christ. Very rarely will a man die for a good man. We did all that, right? Or was I imagining this? I am sleeping the mind. We did that, right? Okay, all right. You're throwing me off. All right, here we go. So it's chapter five. I think we're in verse 12. If we're not, you're just going to bear with me, and you're going to have a hole in your notes. All right, here we go. So uh, Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. This is a super interesting uh, passage in Scripture. If you uh, grasp what it's talking about tonight, it's going to uh, help you kind of uh, get maybe a fresh or a new understanding of this whole idea of Jesus dying on our behalf. And how does that work? How can one man go to a cross and pay for the sins for the rest of us? How… how, how, how how does that even happen? And Romans chapter 5 uh, explains it to us. So here we go. It's Romans chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 12, and here's what it says. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, who was the one man through whom sin entered the world? Adam. 
Okay, so Adam is there, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. He's there in the Garden of Eden. He is told by God, look, you've been given dominion over uh, everything that I've created. It's all under your control. You've got really just almost unlimited freedom here with one exception. You cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, you cannot do that. Other than that, go for it, Adam. And of course, because it was the one thing that God said he could not do, it was the one thing he wanted to do. And then, of course, his wife messed with him, but we won't even get into that. But anyways, uh, he gets in trouble, he eats the fruit, and in that moment, something drastically changes. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Why does the Bible put the blame on Adam when it was actually Eve who ate the fruit first and then encouraged her husband to eat also? Yeah, but why not blame Eve for this whole problem? So where is it? Where is it? We just said it out loud. So come on, microphone runner, because we all need to hear this. We got the hands up. Why is it Adam's problem and not Eve's? Because God told Adam. Because God told Adam. And here's what you're going to get in this passage in just a moment. That when God told Adam, because Adam was the one in which he conferred this to, he placed Adam as the vote caster. Let me say that again. As God gave this command to Adam, he said, Adam, basically you are now the vote caster. So the reality is, think about this for a second, if Eve had eaten the fruit and Adam hadn't, what do you think would have happened? Well, the first thing is you and I would be spared all the problems we have. I don't know what would have happened to Eve, uh, but I got a feeling that God would have gone back and then there would have been Alice. And, you know, we would have had another try at this. Adam is the vote caster. Okay, so here we go. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, because when he cast his vote, he cast his vote the wrong way. And when he did, his vote voted for all of us. Okay? And death came through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. No, 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 wait a minute. All didn't sin. I wasn't in the garden. I didn't sin. Why, why is it saying there that because of what Adam did, all of us sinned? Isn't that an interesting thought? Yep. Okay, microphone runner. Because after um, he sinned, we were, our eyes were opened to sin. So before we were... We weren't able to see it, so it wasn't as clear, maybe. Okay, but here's, I'm asking something probably a little different direction, and it's simply this. So, so let's read this again real quick. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through how many? One man, through Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to who? All of us. All of us suddenly feel the consequence of that one man's decision. And we all end up with death because of what he decided. 
Because, and then it says, ready? Listen to this phrase. Because all sinned. I didn't sin. I wasn't there. How in the world can Scripture say we all sinned with Adam? Here we go. Being descendants of Adam? Being descendants of Adam. Okay, so go that way with me a little bit more. How, how does being a descendant of Adam? So Adam being the first man, we coming after Adam. God gave Adam dominion and essentially right. gave us dominion. Adam handed over dominion that God gave him, essentially that God gave us, over to the enemy. So therefore, we all sin with Adam. That still bugs me a little bit. Does it bug anybody else in here a little bit? Okay, another hand up. I think it's because we're all born with a sinful nature. Okay, but being born with a sinful nature is actually the result of Adam's sin. In other words, if Adam had never sinned, then all humans would have been born perfectly innocent like Adam was, and we would not have had that sinful nature. The sinful nature is because Adam sinned. Yep. I, actually, I was just going to say, I, I think it's because every single one of us would have made the exact same decision. I wouldn't have. <laughs> you know, and actually, ironically, that is the debate that has gone on in Christianity for thousands thousands of years because they say, well, wait a minute, if God knew that Adam was going to sin, why didn't he create Fred? So because if, if he knew Fred wouldn't, why didn't he do Fred? And so some theologians have said, because there's something inside of us in humanness that is less, and all of us would have eventually sinned, is what some theologians argue. I don't know that I agree with that, but it's what they argue. Yep. Because um, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil entered into the world, and we are descended from that. Okay. All right, let me, let, us, let, me get, let me get us there if I can. Of all the people in the world who ought to understand the principle that, that Paul is talking about here, Americans should understand it. Okay. Huh? Well, it is free will, and that's what Adam exercised. But is you ready for this? It's federal representation. So think about this. In a little while, you and I are going to go, we're going to cast our votes, and we're going to send representatives to Washington, right? Okay? And uh, I'm sure all of you are pretty convinced we're going to fix it all this time. But we're going to send representatives to Washington. And here's what's been my experience uh, in the few years that I've lived on this earth. No matter how well I vote, no matter what I do, I send my representative to Washington, and sure enough, somewhere along the way, my representative casts a really stupid vote. And then I have to pay for it. It increases my taxes, or it restricts some of my freedoms. I end up living with the consequences of my representative's vote. Right? You do this all the time. Adam. Adam was your federal representative. God stood him in the garden and he said, Adam, here you are, you get one vote, but here's the deal, every man and woman who comes after you is gonna live with your vote. Make sure you vote right. 
And he stood there in that garden as your federal representative. In other words, he was representing all of us. His vote was our vote because he was given that opportunity to vote by God. And he voted wrong. He voted wrong. And ever since then, humankind has lived with his vote, his federal representation of us. And I hate that. Don't you hate that? Because it means that every one of us was born guilty because since he voted on our behalf, we live with the responsibility of the bad vote because we are Adam's children because he represented us in the moment. Now, some, some theologians, okay, so I just explained to you federal representation, okay? Some theologians have argued seminal, seminal. I, I went to seminary, not to spelling school. All right, here we go. All right, seminal, okay? Seminal representation, which would mean that you and I were represented in the (laughs) semen of Adam, okay? That somehow because the potential of you was there present in Adam, in other words, all generations were seminally present with Adam, that therefore we were present, so to speak, when Adam cast his vote, okay? I don't think that's what happened. I think federal representation is a much better explanation of how Adam was able to cast a vote for us. Here's why. If Adam is gonna get us into sin and we're in sin because we were physically present with him in the semen, so to speak, then that means we would have had to been seminally present in our Savior. Because if he was going to represent us with a new vote, we would have had to have been sent. So we would have all had to have been the sons and daughters of Jesus. And, the, and my argument is that that theory then breaks down. But if Adam was our federal representative, then what if you and I voted for Jesus and we ousted Adam and we let Jesus be our new representative? Then couldn't he cast the right vote for us on the cross? And I believe this is a much better explanation of our representation, okay? So let's go back to the passage. So I think the passage is going to unpack this for us. Here we go. Uh, Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin… Oh, and by the way, guys, you just sat through seminary right there. You didn't even have to pay. Okay, so there we are. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men. What, what type of death is it talking about when it says death came to all men? Spiritual. Spiritual and physical. We died two ways that day because Adam would have never died and his children would have never died. So we, we found the curse of physical death. Matter of fact, when Jesus comes back and takes us to heaven, guess which curse is related? Physical death and spiritual death. Both deaths are conquered by Jesus, okay? So there's a physical death that came upon us. All this, how many of you are in the process of getting older? You realize that's all gone in Jesus, that all of this aging, all of this wearing out, all of that's gone. 
in Jesus when we finally get to heaven. So it's physical death and then spiritual death, okay? Here's an interesting thing too, and, and, and this is going to help you in other passages. You and I, when we think of death in our Western culture, you and I get very fixated on the body. So we think of death and we all just start thinking, oh, there's Grandma Alice's body and, you know, wow, that's kind of weird and I don't know if I want to go close or not. You know, it's just, it, we, when we think in our Western culture about death, we immediately fix on the physical body. In the Eastern mind, which you've got to remember, Scripture was written in a much more Eastern culture. In the Eastern culture, death has much more to do with the loss of a relationship. There's not that same fixation on the physical body. That's why you'll hear a lot of people in an Eastern culture, when a son or a daughter disappoints them or does something that makes the parents really, really sad, they'll say to the son or the daughter, you are dead to me. Well, you realize what they're talking about. They're saying our relationship is severed. Our relationship is now dead. And spiritual death has that same direction to it. That physical death, you can, if you want to, you can take that and get fixated on the body, but especially when you get to spiritual death, it's a relational death. It's this idea that the capacity to be in relationship with God died in that moment. That's what had to be resurrected. That's what had to be healed at the cross. All right, here we go. Verse 13, for before the law was given, Sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did. And you get what it's saying here. It's saying, look, 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 look. Even, even the people who uh, maybe didn't know all the Ten Commandments, didn't know all that, you understand they were still in trouble. Why were they still in trouble? It says here they didn't have the commands, and yet death reigned in them. Why did death reign in them? Because why? All right, let's get microphones down because I can't hear. Raise hands. Give me microphones. Raise hands. Give me microphones. All right. Because they are descendants of Adam. Because you're descendants of Adam. See, when Adam sinned, all of us were affected, and all of us had to live with his vote, which means all of us were found guilty through Adam. And guys, if you think about it, you and I live with this. When Adam was first formed, Adam... Right, let's do that. When Adam is first formed, how much sin does he have? How much? None. None. When you and I have a baby today, how much sin do they have? How much sin do they have? They are a child of... Adam. They're already guilty. And they're born broken. They're born with a bent in their heart. It's called a sin nature. 
It's why you get a two-year-old kid who is all lovable and wonderful and such a nice, innocent little kid, and then her brother tries to take her toy. And we're not innocent anymore. Now, we may be innocent as far as knowledge of sin, but it doesn't mean that we aren't living in the effect of sin. Every child of Adam is born with brokenness. Every child of Adam has come under the decision of Adam. Okay? Yep, question. Yep. So why would God make Adam knowing that he's going to sin? What now? Why would God make Adam knowing that he's going to sin? There you go. There's the question that theologians have asked. And why does God make Adam if he knows Adam is going to sin? And so then the question comes, why didn't God put Fred in the garden if he knew Fred wouldn't sin? And guys, I don't, again, I, this is one of those things that you, I, I don't know that you get to an answer of. The closest I've come to anyone being able to give an answer is that they, they basically would say, all of us, there's something, there's something lesser in us as humans that at some point anybody placed in the garden would have eventually sinned, would have eventually turned away from God. Yeah. God did not want someone who is incapable of saying no to him. God right, wanted, so there, there was definitely free will going on. God wanted us to love him of our own volition. Yeah. I think the question comes, did, did sin have to enter the world in order for that to happen? And we're going to get to heaven, we'll ask God, we'll say, God, was this the only way? Because this way had a lot of pain involved, and this way had a lot of ugliness involved in it. Yep. Doesn't this kind of get to the question of why did God create man to start with, or why did he create the angels to start mm. with? Uh, and uh, one of the things yeah. that I've heard mentioned is that… Man, I wish I could, I wish I could thing, remember the verse. Yeah. Okay, there's a great verse, and I'll, I'll try to get it to you next time, but I know we're not meeting next week. But, but there's a great verse that really seems to say that you and I, humankind, are really God's answer to Satan, okay? We're kind of his response. So think about this for a minute. God is in heaven. He's on his throne. And Satan, what position did Satan, do we want to talk about this? Okay, all right. All right, so Satan, is, the Bible says, is a covering cherub. And all of us go, oh, cherub, that's a little fat baby angel. It's not a fat baby angel. Cherubs were the most powerful angels in all of heaven, and the Bible says that, that Satan or Lucifer was a covering cherub. And a matter of fact, the Bible says, and this is a little funky, that, that the covering cherub had six wings, three sets of wings. And with one set of wings he would fly, with another set of wings he covered his eyes because he was not worthy to look on God, and with another set of his wings he covered his feet because he wasn't worthy to stand in the presence of God. Lucifer was the covering cherub the highest, most powerful archangel in all of heaven. And he's there, and he sees God. He's in the presence of God. He understands who God is. And somewhere in that process, he says, I would rather be God than God. And he actually convinces a third of the angels of heaven to go with him in revolt against God. So get the moment. You're the covering cherub in heaven. You see God every day. You understand his power every day. And yet in that moment you say, I do not want God to be God over me. I want to be God over me. 
and, and his story is told in Isaiah chapter 7. Is that right? Isaiah chapter 7, I'm pretty sure. And uh, seven times he says, I will be like the Most High, I will ascend uh, to the throne of heaven, and he just says, hey, I, don't, I don't want God. So in this moment, he, in the very presence of God, says, I don't want God. Fast forward. Here's man. Have you or I ever seen God? No. And so God, in rebuttal to Satan, says, you saw me and knew me and chose not to love me. So I will make a people who have never seen me and yet freely choose me. And that means every time a sinner calls on God, you realize you're a slap in the face of Satan. Because you say, I love and I want to obey the God I have never met and I have never seen. And I will do this by faith. That word that keeps coming up over and over and over again. And so you and I end up being God's argument, God's rebuttal to Satan. Because you and I who have never seen him freely choose him when he who saw him chose against him. Isn't that kind of fun? Which means every time you and I sit in church and somebody asks Jesus Christ in their heart, it's a slap in Satan's face. And you and I get to smile a little bit, right? It's pretty interesting because you realize the angels only got to make that choice once. So in other words, the, the angels that fell and became what you and I now call demons or fallen angels, they do not get to reconsider that choice. It was a one-time choice. The angels in heaven who did not fall will never fall. It was a one-time choice, okay? But it's interesting because Scripture says when the angels in heaven see the wonder of salvation, the idea that men freely choose God, it is a wonder to them, and they marvel. It's just a really cool testimony. Yep. Thanks. Good job. What now? <laughs> job. Oh, okay, thanks. All right. So right up here is one, two. Okay. Yep. You called uh, Lucifer a, an archangel. Yeah. How many archangels are there? You know, I, we don't know for sure what the count is on archangels. We don't know. Um, as best we can tell, when you get to cherubs, or at least in covering, there's three. And we're pretty sure that Michael uh, is one of those and that Gabriel is another. And again, guys, we don't know that 100%. Just based on what we're reading and getting from, you know, if we get to heaven and all of a sudden, you know, there's another one and its name is, you know, Fred. Don't, you know, don't. But as best we can tell, Michael and Gabriel were the other two uh, in here. But Lucifer was the highest and the strongest. Matter of fact, it's really, really interesting. When you read the book of Jude, it says that Michael, uh, the archangel, was contending against Satan because Satan was trying, and this is a weird, it's a weird passage, you need to go read it sometime, but Satan was trying to steal the body of Moses. And I, again, I know that sounds a little strange. The best I can get from that is, uh, if you're the children of Israel, and the type of esteem, whoops, the type of esteem that the children of Israel would have had for Moses, I think there was some sort of a level where Satan was going to try to get them to worship Moses instead of worship God. That's my best guess. But anyways, in Jude, it says when Michael 
went to contend against Lucifer, against Satan, he dared not bring an accusation against him. Well, why not? I mean, he's guilty as all sin. He dares not bring an accusation against Lucifer because Lucifer is that strong. And so instead, he says, the Lord rebuke you. If that gives you any sense of how strong Satan is, which is, it just gets so silly to me when there's Christians who walk around and they're rebuking Satan and blah. Are you guys? He is way, 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 way stronger than any of us. You are much smarter to do what Michael said. The Lord rebuke you. This isn't me. The Lord rebuke you. Because he, he is, he, he would, think about this, guys. He is so powerful, he looked God in the eyes and said, I can beat you. Now, I don't really, if you remember high school, but you'd walk around, and there were certain people you'd walk around and you'd go, well, I could beat them. But there were people there you went, oh, not taking him on, right? Satan looked God in the eyes and said, I can take you one-on-one, which gives you at least an, and he was wrong, he was stupid, right? But it gives you an estimation of how much power he thought he had. He's not to be contrived with. You are not smarter than him. You are not stronger than him. You do not want to take him on on your own. The Lord rebuke you, Michael said. Okay, real quick, yep. Does that, um, is that why um, Lucifer brought sin into the world and um, why Christ was slain before the foundation of the world? Because sin was already in the world. Yeah, when when Scripture refers to the idea that that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world, that's really just saying that it was always God's plan that Jesus would die. He's just saying that decision was made even before the foundation of the world. God knew he would send Jesus to the cross. That's That's what that part means. Not that he was actually slain, just that the plan was implemented before the world was even created. Yep. Um, it's written in the Bible that he knows the end from the beginning. So he yep. knew clearly that man was going to sin, that Adam yes, he was going to sin. And so I believe that God, in a sense, has a flair for the dramatic. I think he loves theater. Um, mm. And I think that um, this is all a presentation of actually handing over the throne to his son in a way that involves us, uh, I don't know, it's just a really powerful thought um, that he set this all up in a specific, in a certain way so that we can truly know who he is, love him, and choose him. And really, he says that we also are given the power to stomp on serpents and scorpions and given so much power over Satan. So I think I agree completely with you with saying mm-hmm. that it's a booyah every time someone accepts Christ. And that's, I, I think that's why I love baptism so much. Yeah. I'm filled with tear every time somebody goes into death and comes out alive in new birth. Yeah. Okay, let's jump back in, let's keep going. Or are you gonna slow me down? All right, um, verse. 14, let's start there again. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Now watch this. But the gift, the gift is not like the trespass. 
The trespass was Adam. The gift is going to be Jesus. The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that, he, that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not the, like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed the one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So get the moment. He's saying, here's Adam, and Adam's one decision affected thousands and millions and actually led to millions of sins. Jesus, the second Adam, died one death and brought justification for the millions. And he's saying, in the same way that Adam represented you to death, Jesus on the cross represents you to life. But, and here's the but, you have to vote for Jesus. See, isn't that what John 3.16 is saying when it says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him puts their vote in him says, I need a savior. I'm taking my vote away from Adam and I'm giving my vote to Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus becomes your new representative. And that's how Jesus hanging on the cross can take care of your sins because he is your new federal head. Verse 17. For if the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So you have a sinless man who casts his vote the wrong way and brings sin onto all of us, which is why you had to have a sinless man hang on a cross and cast a different vote. It's why none of us could ever have cast that vote for ourselves, because all of us were still under the curse of Adam, and none of us could stand in that moment sinless. We needed a sinless man who could cast the vote again. Questions, we're good, we're happy, it makes sense, we burned our brains, we don't care. Okay, all right. It's cool. When you let that sink in, guys, it's going to be fun. Because again, guys, here's what this answers for us. How is it possible for Jesus to hang on a cross and take care of my sins? It's possible because he becomes my new representative when I cast my vote for him. Okay? All right. Verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase 
But where sin increased, grace increased more. Okay, this is an interesting verse. Listen to what it just said again. The law, all the commands, all the law that the Jews had was added so that the trespass might increase. And you go, whoa, 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 wait, God, wait, 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 wait. You mean you gave us the law so that we would actually be breaking it more often? This did, wait, whoa, 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 this just does not even sound right. How is that possible? Why would a loving God give us laws knowing that we would end up breaking them over and over again and that our guilt would actually become greater because now we were breaking the law more often? Why would a loving God ever do that? Isn't that an interesting question? I think he wanted to show us how much we needed him. Hmm. There you go. Yep. Yep, we stopped. Oh, we gave up. All right. All right. So I think, I think what you said is exactly right. By, by you and I becoming even greater lawbreakers, we suddenly become aware of how desperately we need a Savior. So let me give a couple examples. Maybe these will help. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. Uh, I know a guy who uh, was sitting at a stoplight one day, looked across, and there was a lady sitting in a little red sports car straight across from him. As he's sitting there waiting for the light to turn, he begins to notice that there's something kind of shiny and bright dripping down from underneath her car. As he looks a little more closely, he realizes that it's fire dripping down from underneath. I don't know if it was gasoline that was on fire or I don't know, but there was fire dripping down underneath her car. Maybe it was plastic melting. So now he's kind of going, well, what do I do? The light's red, all this stuff. Out of the corner of his eye, he sees a guy who's been standing on the corner waiting to cross on the crosswalk. He saw the same thing. He sees that her car is dripping fire. He begins to run toward her car. He's going to help her. She looks at him. Think about this. You're a lady sitting at a stoplight. You're just waiting for it to turn. And now a strange big man is running at your car. And she does what probably almost anyone would do and thinks, oh, my goodness, the guy's coming to mug me. So in absolute panic and fear, she steps on the gas. She begins to go across the intersection, even though it's still red, because she's fleeing the man who's coming to hurt her. The car gets about midway in the intersection. It stalls. And now the whole hood bursts into flames. Well, at that moment, suddenly she realized, oh my goodness, he was coming to help. He wasn't coming to hurt. He gets to the door, flies the door open. She actually reaches up to him. He pulls her out of the car. Wait a minute. This is a woman who a few moments before thought he was an enemy, and now a few moments later sees him as a rescuer. What changed? She understood she was in trouble. Why would God give us the law, knowing that we would only break the law more, so that as you and I broke the law over and we'd realize, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. I need a Savior. And all of a sudden you go, oh my goodness. Although I could never fulfill the law, and although the law was hard, the law was given to help me 
understand the depth of my need. Because if I could have been left in a place where I thought, I'm fine and there's nothing broken and there's no problem, I may have never come to the realization that I needed a rescue, that I needed a Savior. So the law was given. Let's read the verse again, then we'll come over here. I'm not missing it. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but there, where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. It seems the problem that, that before Moses, the Jews had lost this sense that they were sinners. Yes. And therefore needed to be aware of that through the law. How does that map to now when we seem to be even more in a, in a society of humanism, make your own God, you know, define your own moralism, and so if you go to most people, they would say, I'm not a sinner. Yeah. I don't need God. And it, and it feels like we're exactly in the same place now as the Jews were in at Moses' time. Sure. So how do, and God gave the law. How does that map to now when people aren't convicted of their own sin? Hmm. So here's my best read, okay? And so now you're asking me to kind of, you know, figure it out. But here's, here's my best read. If, if this is... If this is righteousness and this is darkness, sinfulness, you know, whatever that is, you are absolutely right. We are on this journey. That's exa- I mean, especially if you're just talking about American culture, which direction is American. I mean, we, we are absolutely, I mean, guys, I, I don't need to go down the list, but you realize we, we are applauding things and accepting things that only a generation ago would have turned our stomachs. We are winking at and saying that people have rights to be sinful that a generation ago we would have never tolerated. So I, I, we, we are definitely on the path. We are headed in the wrong. But here's, here's the part that ought to terrify every one of us in the room. The reason that we haven't realized how desperately we need a Savior and the reason our country is still on this path is because it hasn't gotten dark enough. And that's terrifying. That is terrifying. But the reality is we still haven't realized the engine's on fire. We haven't come to that. We, we think we're still okay. We think we're still making progress. And that guy chasing us right now looks like our enemy. And we think Jesus is an intruder and he's someone who's going to steal our rights and he's someone who's going to ruin our life. And he still looks like an enemy to us because we haven't realized how lost we are yet. And here's the thing, and if you watch culture over and over and over again, there's going to be a moment, and I know this is hard to believe, that's darker than now. And in that moment, our society, our culture is going to make a decision. They're either going to realize we're on fire, I'm in trouble, and there'll be a revival out of that moment, or they'll say no, and they'll go even deeper into darkness. And you and I would have hoped that this moment would have already come, that the darkness was already dark enough for us to realize this. But you get the answer is it's not. We, we are applauding darkness in our culture right now. We watch TV shows that elevate darkness right now. Our entertainment is often very dark, even for Christians. So apparently... We have not realized our violation yet. And I hate that answer. And what you and I have to hope for 
is that as darkness gets darker, that you and I as Christians get brighter and brighter. It's why it's incumbent on us not to slip into the darkness and become gray, because then our light isn't bright enough. But in the moment in which culture is going dark, that you and I choose to be that much more holy, that much more like Jesus Christ, so that the contrast between the darkness and the truth of Jesus is that much more evident based on the lives of Christians. But right now, one of the struggles that's happening in our culture is Christians are living in almost as much darkness as their unsaved friends. Okay, so one more little thing, and then I'll go off my hobby horse. Here's here's the dilemma that the church always has, and that is, is that we look at the world. So if the world is standing here, you and I are Christians, and what we say to ourselves is, wow, the world's really bad. The world, I mean, man, the world is really… I'm so glad that I'm not living my life in such brokenness and horrible… Man, I'm so thankful for that. But here's the problem. Then the world moves over a step and gets even darker. And guess what you and I as Christians do? We move over a step because we're just going to stay an arm's length away from the world. And we say in that moment, man, I'm so glad I'm not living such a broken life. I'm so glad I'm not as messed up as people in the world. And what we don't realize in that moment is the Christian life we're now living is a life that looks like what non-Christians used to look like 10 years ago. Because we're focused on not being as bad as bad people instead of being focused on being like Jesus. Because if we were moving in the direction of being like Jesus, you realize the contrast of our lives would be so apparent to that world. But we're too busy being just a little bit more like them, only not quite as bad as them. And our light goes dimmer, and our testimony goes more silent. And people wonder why you even need to know Jesus, because we're not that much different than them. Okay, end of my soapbox. All right, Mitch, real quick. We, 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 we continue to, to, to do this because one of, the, one of the deceptions involved is that self-management always seems to work for a while when you're in it. Yeah. And I'm not that bad. We do it ourselves. It's like addiction. I, yeah. I haven't lost my job. I haven't lost my marriage. I haven't lost my paycheck. I haven't, I'm not living under I'm better than that guy. So I'm okay. I'm, I'm better okay. than that guy. Because I'm comparing myself to someone who doesn't know God instead of comparing myself to my Savior. The call to Christians was not to be one step better than the world. The call to Christians was to be like Jesus. It's a completely different conversation. All right, here we go. I'm off my soapbox. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. All right. Hey, we made it through chapter 5. How much time do we have? 11 long minutes. Here we go. Chapter 6. All right. So let me, give us, let me give us a little bit of review as we get up to where we are now. Remember, guys, I've been saying this all through this conversation, that we're going to get into some really tough chapters in just a little bit that have confused Christians for years and years and years and years. And a reason that they've confused them is because they did not understand and keep in mind what happened in the early chapters of Romans. And I'm going to suggest to you that when we get to the harder chapters, they're going to make so much more sense if you and I remember the conversation so far. So here's what's happened so far. Chapter 1, chapter 2, 
Paul has made the argument and said, remember, the heathen are in trouble because they pushed down the truth of God. The moralist was in trouble because even as he was being moral, he still violated his conscience. And then the Jew was in trouble because the Jew did not keep the law. Remember that? So we got done with chapter two, and Paul had said, everybody, the heathen, the moralist, and the Jew are all under sin. All are in trouble. He then went to chapter three, and remember he said, the law was given in order to expose your sin. The law was given so that you would know that you needed a savior. And the law was never able to save, chapter three. He gets to chapter four and he says, the way you get saved is by faith. Remember, Abraham by faith, David by faith. That's how you get saved. Chapter five, he just said, Adam led us into sin, Jesus led us out of sin. So my faith needs to be placed in Jesus. And if you're following Paul, he just invited you to be a Christian. He just crossed that bridge of salvation in our lives. He has said, if you want to be saved, if you want a Savior, it's got to be Jesus. Okay? There's the argument. You were in sin, whether you realized it or not. The law was never going to save you. You had to come to God by faith, and it had to be faith in Jesus, chapter 5. Now chapter 6. And here's what you got to understand. By the time we get to chapter 6, you're a Christian. Chapter 6 is now going to start dealing with issues about being a Christian because you got saved in chapter 5. Okay, good. You guys are catching on. All right, here we go. Chapter 6 now switches to Christian issues, not to becoming Christian issues. Here we go. Chapter 6. What shall we say then? Who is we? Christians, because we got saved in chapter 5. Okay? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace uh, may increase? By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? When did we die to sin? All right, come on, mic runners, raise your hands. When did we die to sin? When we accepted Jesus. Okay? When we accepted Jesus. Sin was our master. When we voted for Jesus, we voted for a new master. And in that moment, we died to the old way of life, to Adam's way of life, and we chose Jesus. So we died to sin and came alive to Christ. Go back to verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay, so let's, let's stop there for a second. Here's what's happening. It's the argument that comes up in a lot of Christian lives. They go, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that when I believe in Jesus, I become a Christian by faith. And I don't have to earn heaven. No, 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 no. You don't have to earn heaven. Jesus forgives you of all of your sins. Now you're going to heaven. And what do a ton of baby Christians ask immediately after that? Huh? What do I have to do? And you say, well, you don't have to do anything. You put your faith in Jesus. Every sin is forgiven. You get to go to heaven now. Oh, you guys haven't been around the block enough. 
All right, so here's what Christians start to ask. Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. If Jesus forgave all my sins, if heaven is guaranteed, then doesn't that mean I can go sin all I want? Because I'm going to heaven anyways. Party! All right? I mean, if Jesus forgives my sin, you're telling me I'm a Christian now, I get to go to heaven anyways, well then, can't I just go sin? Because all of it's forgiven anyways. Read the verse again. That's exactly what they're asking. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? In other words, hey, if I sin more, it just means Jesus forgives more. That's a pretty cool deal. By no means, he says, we died to sin. How can we live to it? And he's saying, guys, 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 you got to, when you made this decision, you decided to die to the old way of life and now begin to live a new way of life. That's what this decision was about. You were saying, hey, I'm done with the old master. I'm now going to live for a new master. And that decision was a dying decision. It was dying to my old way and becoming alive to my new way. So why would you go back to the old way? That's what you were saved from. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. All right. So what happens at baptism? Because he's now referring to this moment of baptism. You know what? We're going to be fancy. <laughs> Look at that. I did not go to elementary school for nothing. All right. So... Now we're in this moment of baptism. What happens at baptism? Help me out. Why do we get baptized? What's baptism all about? All right, microphone, microphone. We leave our old life and become new with God. We leave our sins and start living for God. All right, so let me ask you another question. What if, what if, we'll, we'll make him Tim. What if Tim asked Jesus Christ to be his savior, to come into his life, but never gets baptized? Is Tim a Christian? Okay. Then what is baptism about? It's obedience. It's an outward expression. It's... A She's a nice person. Turn on the microphone. All right. I think it's more of um, a personal commitment to your relationship with Christ. Okay. Yep. Uh, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not the water baptism that you put up there on the board. Oh, you, in this passage, you think it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Versus water baptism? Um, Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you would get that from that passage. It surely doesn't say baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yep. It's a public testimony. 
to public testimony. You're dying to yourself. You're dying of your old ways. So here's what I'm asking when you say that. If Tim never gets baptized, does it mean he never dies to himself? Good questions. All right, go. Um, it, I, oh. I guess Can you it turn the voice of God off of his microphone? Yeah. This is <laughs> I think it depends on what you believe theologically, because some people believe, like the neighbors here, they believe that it's a completion of salvation. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you would have to complete it. But it depends on if you were, was it Hebrews where it says that everybody before this command is okay because this is a new command to be baptized is, as a standard of salvation. It's a completion of, depending if you believe that. I don't yeah, know. I, think, I think scripture is pretty clear that says, hey, baptism is not for the washing away of sins, but at the answer of a good conscience toward God. So I, I, I would push back on anybody who would, would try to include baptism in as a, salve, a salvific effect, okay? So, matter of fact, and, and, you know, to me, the easiest one, guys, is Jesus is hanging on the cross. Remember the thief on the cross next to him? Uh, he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, by the way, but wait a minute, let's get off the cross and go baptize you first because you have to do that to complete salvation. And he doesn't say that, right? Uh, John 3.16 says, as many... Uh, for God's soul of the world gives his own begotten Son that whosoever believes in him and is baptized. No, no believes in him. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, as many as believed in him, to them gave you the right to be called the sons of God and were baptized. No, no. no believed in him. Okay, so I, I think it's a really hard stretch for anybody. Matter of fact, Ephesians 5 says, you're saved by grace through faith and not of baptism. Not works, you're right, works. But works is a, baptism is a work. So I think Scripture is very clear that baptism is not a regenerative act. It's not a salvific act. Yep. Don't we consider all these things, baptism, marriage, the Lord's Supper, sacraments being physical outward representations of spiritual truths? Absolutely. We're declarations in marriage, we're declaring we're one flesh by the sacrament of the physical act of the spiritual truths. Yep. So baptism, the outward representation, physical declaration of the spiritual truth. Yeah. Lord's so, Supper, they, again, same thing. So absolutely. They're all considered sacraments over representations of spiritual truth. And again, when we say sacraments, the only thing I want to say out loud is, and I, don't, I have no problem calling them a sacrament, as long as you understand that a sacrament does not impart righteousness. Okay? So when I get married, it does not impart righteousness. Matter of fact, well, anyways, uh, but uh, when uh, marriage may have exposed my unrighteousness, when I get baptized, it does not impart righteousness. When I take communion, it does not impart righteousness. It is an outward act that represents an inward belief. Okay? All right, I think we're out of time because I see people leaving, so I either made a matter or we're out of time. We're out of time? Okay, so we'll come back. We'll finish here when we come back after Thanksgiving break, okay? Because there's a really, really cool picture that the Scripture is going to unpack for us here in Romans. All right, guys, thank you for being here and being part of it.